This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my fellow hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Tablet Editor-at-Large, Leah Leibowitz. A.K.A. Amar Cheshvan. Happy Rosh Chodesh to you. Yes, Chodesh I thought we're tov. done with all that stuff. Oh, that's every month. It just keeps on coming. I got pulled into Minion yesterday at my shul. I dropped the kids off for Hebrew school. And they said, oh, can you stay for Minion? You know, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll stay for a little, little chakras. And then it's I realized it's Rosh Chodesh. And it's like Torah reading, Musaf. Yeah. Nine hours later, I stumble out with a gray beard. <laughs> the kids like, are like, where have you been? <laughs> exactly. I needed to ride home three hours The girls hours are ago. married now. They have children <laughs> of their own. But, but you prayed. <laughs> but I prayed. I made it to, to morning prayers. Uh, today, we bring you a conversation with comedian and author Michael Ian Black, whose new book is all about masculinity and fatherhood. And we also spoke with Kylie Younell about identity and the term Jews of color. She's the organizer of a new community for young Jews, bringing ideas, bringing intellectual heft back into the Jewosphere. And she's a really thoughtful commentator on all sorts of things. It was a great conversation with her. But before we get to our guests, let's uh, let's talk about our favorite subject, us. Liel, what's going on with you this week? So something kind of terrible might have happened inadvertently uh, that I learned from our listeners in emails and on our Facebook group. So uh, those of you keeping score at home may recall that, Mark, when you asked last week, what do you do with the leftover sukkahs thing? I said, Mm -hmm. I like to shave the peel of the estrog and use it to sort of rub the rim of my martini glass, therefore creating a very nice martini. With the esrog essence, an esrogini, if you will. However, uh, <laughs> our our sharp-eyed uh, and and sharp-minded listeners wrote in to say, um, do technically because nobody eats esrogs, they're actually not like FDA approved and are completely filled with like deadly poisonous <laughs> chemicals. <laughs> Therefore, please do not be stupid and put them anywhere near your mouth. Well, it's funny. It's funny because we Man. we had a, a piece in tablet like five years ago saying like when Sukkot is over, don't discard that etrog and it says what to do with it. <laughs> but that was like a little, you know, a ways back. And so we pushed it last week on tablet again and people were writing and being like, you can't do that anymore. Like, there are so many pesticides. It's like, we've basically, like, in the past few, I mean, maybe it was then too, but, like, don't eat it, basically. Everyone's just like, no eating at drugs. So I think we just stumbled upon the best ever origin story for a superhero. He was an ordinary Jew until a radioactive Esrog martini turned him into... Sukkus man. Until Hoshana Raba got him. His superpower? He knows how to shake the lulav in the correct order. He doesn't even have to look it up. But when he finally finishes all the shakes, that's when like lightning beams and and firecrackers go off, and all of a sudden he emerges out of the cloud of light. As that's, yeah, that's how he engages his superpower. Exactly. Oh, I love it! It's Left, like it's right. like He Man and his sword is like I have the lulav. It's great. So I went out with Sid last night to a New Mexican place uh, in our community. Inside or outside? Outside. Outside. We sat outside, which it, Sid's always cold anyway. So it didn't, it wasn't like the most romantic of dates because we're all bundled <laughs> up. It was 40 <laughs> degrees out, but it's a new place that opened up and everyone's trying it. And I, to warm up, had my my monthly drink, uh, a very fine mojito. <laughs> And one thing that happens when I have a drink is that I end up get, having really weird dreams. And I, 
I am a firm believer that nobody wants to hear about anyone else's dreams or their children's accomplishments. Like those are two things. If you want to keep- That hasn't stopped you, but if yes. You, <laughs> if you want to keep your friends, don't tell them your dreams. And don't, like, you know the way you glaze over when even your spouse, when they're telling you a dream, it's like, okay, this was really vivid for you. And for me, this is just something to get through. But this is relevant to, to everything because the dream was- that I was in the co-working space in Westville in my neighborhood where I don't belong, but I happen to be there and I'm typing away in a little cubicle and a, a woman pokes her head in. She's like a 25-year-old sort of grad student hipster, bohemian, uh, you know, a creative, as they say. And she pokes her head in and she's singing I Get a Kick Out of You, the Cole Porter song from the musical Anything Goes. And I start singing along with her because I, I happen to know the lyrics to that song. And when we finish singing together, she says, I'm Fidel Friedman. And I was wondering who would join in with me on singing that song. And then I sort of woke up and I thought to myself, Fidel Friedman, like how Jewish podcaster of that is me that I'm now having dreams about sort of 25 younger women singing Cole Porter, whose names are things like Fidel Friedman. So Mark, I see your dream yeah, and I raise you a dream of my own, okay. which I was actually going to share later on <laughs> in this here program. But since you brought it up, okay. I too believe telling people about your dreams is basically the most. Are there 25-year-old women in yours as well? <laughs> There's Josh Cross in mine. There's a 45-year-old bull dude with a yeah. beard. Okay, so here's my dream. Uh, my dream was that Josh caused me panicking. Uh, and this is like Saturday late evening after Shabbos. And he says, um, Saturday Night Live just called. Do you remember <laughs> this song that we sang on the podcast about Sukkot? And I said, yes, even though there's no such song. And he said, well, they want us to be the musical The musical guest. act. <laughs> and therefore, he came up and he came over and picked me up in a van. And we rushed over to get to Studio 8H so we could be the musical guest. Now, now here's what we did. Because because we're weird. We recorded the song. This is like that Reply All episode where the guy has the song in his head and he can't explain what it is, but he that, knows it exactly. What was so great about that episode is for a long time, he thought that song was by the Bare Naked Ladies, the Canadian band big in the, the 90s and early aughts that I adored. Adored. Like of it was basically. Of, of course you did. Like <laughs> they returned to the Bare Naked Ladies returning to relevance thanks to Reply All. But look, we're here, so Leal, just it's so I can- It's been 20 years since someone talked about the Bare Naked Ladies. So, I like that he was like, I can't believe they think was this Mark. was our song. <laughs> so, <laughs> so wait, Leal, just to be clear, did you and Josh, after you had this dream, you, you called Josh and said, let's write the song that was alluded to in my dream? After I had the dream, I called Josh and said, hey baby, you were in my dreams last night. Okay, let's we have to hear this now. Okay, let's hear the song that you and Josh wrote. The festival of Booth Sukkot The festival of Booth Sukkot Oh my god <laughs> Everyone's dancing on the Zoom You can't see it But you can feel it <laughs> This is so creepy Oh boy! Um, Imagine dancers in like full body, yeah. like full body lulavs, like running those, around those car salesmen <laughs> doing, doing this. It's very Daft Punk, you know. Like you put on the helmets, and you can terrify. If I played that for my children when they were sleeping out in the sukkah, they would never do it again. They would. They would convert. It, that's right. <laughs> I just feel like you guys 
both had very eventful weekends. I want to tell you what I did this weekend, which was um, I went to see my nephew Noah. I guess also my sister and brother-in-law who <laughs> who house him and my Poor other test, nephew, right. nephew Charlie. But I my Noah's obsessed with rainbow bagels. Like the first time he saw one, he was just like, what is this? I love this. So what I thought was like, I can never, I don't even know how to make bagels. But what I can do with him is make a rainbow challah. So I basically made the dough here and then put food coloring on each of them. And then I let it rise in the car up to Westchester. <laughs> and then when we were there, we like braided it together and made the challah. And it was the most fun. It was basically like Play-Doh that you can eat. We did the second rise after we braided it. So we got a little bigger. And he kept saying, I want it to get all the way bigger. Because he like understood that it like wasn't there yet. And then it was in the oven. And he kept being like, is it all the way bigger yet? And I was like, it is. And then we ate it. But anyway, it was so fun. Also painting with egg wash and a brush. It was amazing. First of all, Play-Doh you can eat is otherwise known as Play-Doh. Because you can eat Play-Doh. <laughs> it's just Play-Doh cooked, right? Like Play-Doh that goes in the oven. Um, well, it's, it makes me sad because I hadn't seen them in a while because they moved up to Westchester. I hadn't, we, we last saw each other about six weeks ago, which for us is like a, a very lengthy amount of time. Um, and I miss them. I mean, when before the pandemic, I was seeing them like once a week. I would just pop up to my sister's apartment and see them. And like, I feel like Charlie, who's almost one, I haven't, I don't like know him as well as I knew Noah when he was almost one. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's all really about me. Well, I just want somebody to tell me who Fidel Friedman is because she was in my dream last night. Is it Fidel, like Fidel Castro? Like, is that a spelling? No, like, like, like fidelity, right? There's an extra E at the end. It's a very Catholic name. Like, the, there's an interesting backstory. I would like a listener to share with me your backstory. I mean, what if Fidel Friedman Fidel is a listener? Friedman. And then you've dreamt of a listener. That would be mind-blowing. But if not, let's create a backstory for her. Thoughts on Rainbow Hollas, Liel and Josh's song, or the mysterious Fidel Friedman at 914-570-4869. Call us, 914-570-4869. And if you want to hear the rest of Liel and Josh's Sukkot song, stick around till after the credits. I get no kick from champagne. Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all. So tell me why should it be true that I get a kick out of you? News of the Jews. N-O-T-J, news of the Jews. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. Future unorthodox Jew of the week, Mark Zuckerberg. If he falls far enough, fast enough, we will catch him in our arms and we will cradle him and bring him in as a I mean, Jew of the we? week. Yeah, I'd put him on the show. Do, do we have to? He's not a great talker, but I, put, I feel like... Can we, can we trade him for someone else? <laughs> would his Zoom camera be on or off? Because I think Zoom camera on would make me too uncomfortable. Yeah. Mark Zuckerberg uh, announced this week that Facebook would no longer serve as a platform for Holocaust-denying posts. Yeah, notably, uh, like a little while ago, I actually have no idea when it was. It could have been a year. It could have been three years. That he basically said he had used Holocaust denial as an example of speech that would be tolerated on Facebook because he was like, well, I I don't agree with it, but, you know, it can be it can be available here. Right. There's lots of points of view. It's another opinion. <laughs> and we're like, right. is there Mark Zuckerberg? Um, and then this week, they obviously sort of came out and said, no, no Holocaust denial. We will, you know, sort of ban those. We will prevent those posts from being disseminated on Facebook. So I just wanted to talk about this a little bit because it actually raises a lot of interesting questions. There are countries like Germany, for example, that 
do ban Holocaust denial, that there where the notion of protected speech does not extend to certain kind of calumnies or lies. And in fact, you can be jailed for denying the Holocaust. And there are similar laws, I think, in France. Um, England has not Holocaust denial bans, but you know, there's all kinds of prior restraint that can be put on publications like the, the, the freedom of the press where basically you can say whatever you want and you can platform whatever you want and people can sue you afterwards in the United States if they think that you've libeled or slandered them. But there's no prior restraint and there's no sense that publications are uh, – there are no criminal penalties for any of this stuff. That's a particularly American way of doing things and I just thought – you know, Facebook is this platform. They claim not to be journalism, but they are a platform for journalism. And so they aren't held liable anyway. That was actually written into federal law that they they don't have to stand behind the stuff that they platform. So many questions come up about what should be our attitude toward things like Holocaust denial. Should the law step in? Should corporations step in and ban it? Or do we just want to say the best ideas will win in the marketplace of ideas. So have at it. And I, I don't know. What do you guys think? The Facebook marketplace of ideas. To me, you raised you raised a much bigger and much more troubling question, basically by asking, you know, what what Facebook is at the moment and and what it ought to be. The the question to me isn't what Facebook should or shouldn't allow, uh, because the notion that Facebook gets to decide what is permissible and what isn't, uh, you know, in this great big place where most of us now get our news. Well, how do you define Holocaust denial? Is it anything that you find troubling? Is it based on history? Is it based on history only by people that, you know, you see uh, as, as, as appropriate? To me, the bigger question here is different. The bigger question is, what is Facebook? Now, I think the answer to that is pretty simple. It's a website that makes a lot of money off of people posting content to which they then sell advertising, which is kind of the classical definition of what a publisher is. We have laws in place to deal with that, and yet somehow these people bamboozled all of us into arguing that they're somehow a platform and all of the laws don't apply to them. So let them publish whatever they want and let them be treated as publishers and let anyone sue them for libel if they have a good case. This system has worked for America for a very long time. And I don't think we should look to Europe uh, for answers because America was started precisely so as not to be Europe. So your your take is? My take is I don't want Facebook deciding what is and isn't permissible to publish. I want Facebook treated just like every other publisher, which it is, which means if anyone posts anything that is liable, uh, that is libelous on it, we should be able to sue them, uh, which is how it works with newspapers and has for about 200 and something years in this country. Now, to be fair, though, and I'm not disagreeing, I'm very torn about this question. That doesn't do much for, say, Holocaust denial because you can't libel the dead, right? And so if you're not specifically libeling some living person, right, if you're not accusing a particular Holocaust survivor of making up his story or her story, if you're just generally saying six million is overinflated, it was actually 100,000 at most, and they died of typhus, not of gas chambers. If you're just spreading total nonsense, Mm-hmm. There's no course of action. Just throwing out there like, hey, you know, go to this website that will tell you that it, there were no gas chambers and it was all just made up by shadowy Zionists in 1950, all of whom are dead. There's no course of action there, Liel. So claiming that that will be a check on it, that won't work. Now, maybe maybe it's too too much to ask that there be checks on this stuff. The classic free speech position is 
You hope that the good ideas went out over the stupid ones. And if you do want checks, I want the checks to be something greater and better than a bunch of 28-year-olds and their algorithms, right? Because we're seeing this very week how uh, these social media platforms could you know, decide to ban or mute anyone uh, for whatever reason they want, uh, political, ideological, artistic. It doesn't matter. I don't want any platform any small number of people to have that kind of power over what I can and cannot see. So, yeah, I agree can with you. Can and cannot uh, see. Cannot see, right. Uh, and Sorry. any solution here is going to be, you know, imperfect. Uh, but if I have to err on one side, I'm erring on the side that has made this country really work well for a very long time. And if you want a better solution, I think Facebook, honestly here, I think Facebook should be nationalized. I don't see any reason why not. I mean, we used, we used to have a situation in this country. I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember a time in which, you know, the airwaves, for example, were subject to all kinds of federal legislation because they were seen to be a public good. Why isn't the same thing true of, of this marketplace of ideas where we all congregate? Yeah, well, there was right. I mean, because Reagan destroyed it all because the, the the fairness doctrine uh, and held it all in check. And of there course. used to be a rule that you couldn't own a TV station and a newspaper in the same market. And Correct. basically, the Republicans in the eighties destroyed all that so that Rupert Murdoch and others right. could make lots of money. I mean, to be somebody fair, will Clinton, be decided. Clinton also helped in the nineties, but I'm saying the, let's 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 nationalize it right now. I worry about the consequences, perhaps unintended, of saying this type of speech is banned here. Because then if I'm like a virulent anti-Semite, right, and I see that Facebook is not allowing me to promote my beliefs. So like Facebook, owned by Jewish Mark Zuckerberg, is now letting me spread my misinformation that I may believe. Like, I just think that it's rife for just conspiracy and sort of like creepy conspiratorial leaning. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like this this helps with people who hate Jews. You're worried it hurts. It, it makes the Jews look bad. It's going to be used by anti-Semites against us. Uh, the problem, of course, is no matter what happens, the, the real anti-Semites will blame the Jews no matter what, whether it's nationalized, whether we break up the trusts. Whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or Randy Zuckerberg. <laughs> or Priscilla Chan Zuckerberg, or they'll come, they'll come for us anyway. I think here's how we resolve this. We don't ban any kind of speech, but we break Facebook up to three Facebooks. There is Orthodox book, reform book, and conservative book. And then they just have to work together. And if you don't like one, you go to the other. Or you belong to two, but you hate a third. Just, you know, take all of our institutional wisdom and confer it on them. Which one plays your and Josh's song about Sukkot? I think that's that's Reconstructionist book, renewal book. <laughs> renewal book. Non-affiliated <laughs> like, book? Nuns? Secular, secular non-observant nuns book? Part of the JCC book. Guys, I'm post-denominational Facebook is where I'm at. There we go. You may have seen him in MTV's The State or in Wet Hot American Summer, or you might have seen him in Inside Amy Schumer or The Jim Gaffigan Show, or you might have read one of his many books, including his new one, A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son. He is our Jew of the Week comic legend, Michael Ian Black. Michael, thanks for being here with us. Shalom, baby. Shalom. 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 I had a notion. Is there a part of the book that you might read for us? It's a beautiful book that you wrote to your son as he was heading off to college. I mean, I just opened to a random page. I opened to page 100. Give us some random literary genius. So this is in a chapter called No Sissy Stuff. For all its tough talk and false bravado, traditional masculinity is so easily spooked by boys who want to live outside of its narrow boundaries. No Sissy Stuff isn't really about femininity. It's about control. 
We learn to control ourselves, but in doing so, we also become objects of that control. Traditional masculinity tries to keep men on as narrow a path as possible. When you deviate from it, it pushes you back. I look at you, and I'm, in the you in this case is my son to whom this book is addressed. I look at you and I see a classic straight white male. You wear hoodies and t-shirts with funny sayings and the same scuffed sneakers we bought you two years ago. Whenever mom asks if you need any new clothes or really anything at all, you tell us you're good, that you've got everything you need. Maybe you do and maybe you don't. Sometimes I see the gears of your brain turning in quiet clicks and I wonder, what are you building in there? So, Michael, I walked in with high expectations because I'm, I'm a fan of your work, but also with, you know, the sort of mindfulness that this is the guy that I see on Wet Out American Summer and I love the 80s and the 90s, like these shows in which you have a persona that is quite often very funny precisely because it's kind of detached, removed, sort of seemingly aloof from the thing. And here I am reading a book that is immensely, astonishingly, really connected, grounded, introspective, earnest, honest, touching. Did it require a kind of shift of mental state of sitting and being like, yes, well, it's also going to be a really funny book because I'm a very funny person, but shit's going to get real. Yeah. I mean, I talk about it a little bit in, in this book about how so much of my career is based on being deadpan, sarcastic, detached, and how a certain number of years ago, that started to feel um, less true for me. I don't know that it ever felt true, but it felt like it was a little bit of a professional prison that I was encasing myself in. And I just decided that I needed to start opening up both in my comedy and my writing, hopefully in my acting as well, just because it wasn't serving me anymore. It just wasn't serving me as a person anymore. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out a way to, I mean, it sounds stupid, but just how to be myself. And this book is probably closer to how I actually am on a daily basis than the stuff that you see on TV. Look, I would imagine that walking into this specific topic, there are so many traps that are set for you right there from the very premise, right? I want to read a little paragraph from the book, which, which I found was just, first of all, so funny, but also so true. You write, I worry that the term toxic masculinity is a little like the phrase New Jersey native. Both are impossible to hear without feeling a little defensive. <laughs> I don't want you to feel that way about being a guy you're talking into your son. Yes, be aware of certain bilious and worse behaviors men sometimes display to women's concerns for their safety and well-being. Yes, do the steady work of self-improvement. But I worry that continuously describing male expression as toxic has the cumulative effect of denying the goodness in men. So why do you think we've had so much conversation about womanhood and, as you say in the book, not enough conversation about manhood? Why is this really the first book that I've read, and I'm obsessed with this topic, that does this kind of work? Because for so long, the status quo has mandated that men are in control. Men are the top of the food chain. Men are, and specifically white men in this culture, are the dudes who just kind of pull the levers of power, run everything. And they haven't needed to have the kind of self-examination that women have had over the last, let's say, two centuries, but more specifically in the last 50, 60 years with the explosion of the women's rights movement. The result of modern feminism has been that women have kind of accelerated through the culture in a way that has changed the culture. And a result of that is that men are in a lot of ways falling behind in some ways professionally, certainly emotionally. They're struggling with 
depression in ever higher numbers. They're dealing with a lot of blowback for their behavior, usually merited. And it's forcing for the first time, I think, in our culture, a necessity of re-examination for men. Men just have to figure out like who the hell we are and what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to be. And those aren't easy questions. In particular, because the way that masculinity is generally patterned and modeled, the very nature of masculinity doesn't allow us to question it. Because we're so conditioned to sort of be invulnerable, to show invulnerability, when it comes time to like look at ourselves and be like, you know, am I okay? That very question threatens the model that we, so many of us, were brought up with. You know, it's so funny because hearing you talk and reading your book, it's like everything I've learned about the patriarchy, right, is that, like, I don't feel bad for men. That's actually part of the problem, right? That attitude that how can a man have a problem, like all these things, how could a boy need, you know, the same guidance? That's sort of like an entrenched something going on with me, right? Like I'm part of the problem in some way. Oh, you're the worst. Yeah, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) It's about time someone said it. Yeah, it's your fault, Stephanie. But like, do you know what I'm saying? Like this idea that it's hard to parse these two ideas of like men have all the power in society, but also actually maybe we're helping to perpetuate a problematic world for them. I think both things can be true. It can and is true that the patriarchy, the men dominated and men run culture has created innumerable problems for women. It has also created innumerable problems for men. We are slotted into proscribed roles that don't necessarily fit us. We are given wildly contrasting and conflicting messages about relationships, about emotions, about what constitutes success, what constitutes happiness, what our role is in the culture. We have problems too because we're people and all people have problems. What you're reflecting, I think, is something that's been growing in the culture and needed in the culture, necessary and important, which is the message to young women and girls that they can be anything, do anything, succeed on their own terms, they can be strong, fierce, independent, all of those things. That's an important message. And I feel like that message has taken 50 or 60 years to really start to sink in, to really start to resonate and to really resound with the female population to the point, as I said earlier, where women are doing better than men in so many respects. An unintended consequence of that is that for all the attention we're giving and rightful attention we're giving to girls, there is oddly, paradoxically, I think in some cases, not enough attention being given to boys and young men because it's assumed that we already know in our bones that we can be anything, do anything. But I don't know that that's true. Professionally, maybe, yeah. We go, oh, yeah, I can grow up and I can be a drag car racer and an astronaut and I can be a nurse if I want and I can do whatever I want to do. But from a personal point of view, I'm not sure that it's true. I'm not sure that we are granted the same space of expression and agency in a a weird way. Which comes down to the question of what role parents play in this, what role dads play. Oh, I don't pay attention to my kids. I ignore my kids. (laughs) Yeah, just benign neglect. I actually practice malignant neglect when I can. Um, (laughs) This book was written as a letter sending your your son off to college. You 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 dropped him off at the dorm and some dads were saying, here's your new iPhone. You say, son, here's a manuscript. But you had some 
to put it mildly, problematic parenting yourself. Your parents divorced. Your father died when you were how old? Twelve. Twelve. That made me very sad when you said, you know, this was the last picture taken of him and he was, what, 39 or something? Mm -hmm. And then as to your mother who had left your father for a woman, I just want to read this paragraph because it it recalled so much of my childhood, although I was not raised around lesbians, but a kind of, you know, a lot of the, the second wave feminist talk. Mom and Elaine thought of themselves as fervent feminists, but I'm not sure how much work they actually did for the movement. In my household, I understood feminism as mostly being about getting Ms. Magazine in the mail every month, listening to my mom and Elaine talk about what a genius Lily Tomlin was, and sitting in silence at dinner as they unloaded about what some asshole man did at work that day. (laughs) The Ms. Magazine Lily Tomlin sort of, if you have those two, you're basically in the early 80s being raised by feminists. You are woke in the 80s. You are woke in the 80s, and and then your your mothers are making you watch 9 to 5. (laughs) So then you end up a dad in Connecticut, I think not far from where I live. If this is your roundabout way of asking to hang out, we're not. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Why else have a podcast except That's to try right. to make friends? Just to get blurbs for my future books. Um, <laughs> is any of us hanging with anyone these days? Actually, we're all hanging out without you. <laughs> That's right. I knew it. Then you end up a dad. I want to know, do you think that you did a good job in your son's first 18 years. We can include your daughter, Ruthie, as well. So I think I have done a good job so far. I don't think I've done an amazing job. I've been fine. You know, it's hard to measure these things and they might say differently. And I don't think there's one model of parenting that's necessarily better than another. I think some are clearly better, but I don't think there's any one way to parent. I feel like it's more of a question for my kids and there is a correct answer for them to give you but it's not for me to give you. So let me ask you about this. As we wait for Elijah and, and Ruthie to come on the show and tell all. Great names, by the way. Thanks. Amazing. Uh, Full on Jewy. So solid. You write in the book about this measurement, about this kind of index that is very silly, but completely exists for men of measuring everything according to how macho it is. You know, mm-hmm. you say you take your tea, which is already strike one, right? With milk, strike two, as opposed to black coffee, which is what a man drinks. Now, I was raised by a man who who thought that, you know, the the Dukes of Hazard was a parenting manual. Do you still find yourself thinking like that? Because let me tell you, I do all the time. I would say or do things be like, no, I, I can't actually because that's not manly enough. Which I realize is so stupid, but I'm I'm that person. Are you? Of course. I don't think you can grow up in this culture and not be that person, whether you're male or female, because everybody speaks that language fluently. Everybody understands like on the infinite axis of manliness, like what's more macho than something else. I mean, I can give you any random example. Let's look at pillows. Pillows, which are inherently non-masculine. Yeah, not macho. (laughs) Even using a pillow is kind of girly. Oh, yeah. But if we had to rank (laughs) this pillow, absolutely well, you can't see the color. More masculine than this. Well, in this light, this is a little more purpley. That's sort of regal and maybe more masculine than this one. But in my light, this is sort of pinkish and less masculine than this patterned neutral. Than this solid, muscular gray. That's right. We, we call it John Wayne gray. You can, you know, you know, literally anything. Like, you know, my flannel shirt here is far more masculine than my Liz Fair band merch, you know. <laughs> Anything. The way I'm sitting right now, I'm sitting one leg crossed over the other, and we all know how unmasculine that is. It's so ludicrous, and yet we all speak the language fluently. We all understand it. We all understand its implications. And so if you're raised in that culture, as we all have been, yeah, you. I, I can't help but be aware of it. I think it's a conscious decision to like overcome it, 
But yeah, I'm super aware of it. So Michael Ian Black, we talked about your kids' names. I want to talk about your name. I did not know, having, you know, like been a fan of yours for a very long time, you changed your name. Born a Schwartz. Like you change it to the sort of English translation from the German. Right, that's right. It's because Jewish men don't make it in comedy. That's right. Well, when I was a young actor, there was another Michael Schwartz in the union when I went to join Actors Equity, which is the theater union. And so I would have had to have changed my name anyway. I could have just inserted the Ian and been Michael Ian Schwartz. But the truth was like, I think like a lot of actors of my generation felt like it was an impediment to be labeled, not as Jewish necessarily, but as any ethnicity, because you wanted to sort of present as blank a slate as possible to casting directors. I don't think that's as true anymore. And I also just, Black just was such a snappy name. I was like, Michael Black, that's snappy. Yeah. But there was a Michael Black too, so I had to go Michael Ian Black. <laughs> I didn't want to use Ian. I thought that was dumb and pretentious, but I didn't I didn't have a choice. I remember when I first figured out who Casey Shamashko was, and I thought, that took balls, man. That guy entered the <laughs> unions with a name that nobody could spell or pronounce or what. It just, you know, he just leaned right into it. It is so funny, though, because it was not, I did not realize you were Jewish until we were both on the Zoom to try out for the Jewish Book Council's, like, author network. And I was like, Oh, so it actually like worked so well that you tricked even us, which are, you know, seasoned. uh... All I'm trying to do is pass, baby. That's all I'm (laughs) trying to do. Stephanie was like, wait, I have to compete against the Gentiles too. There's guys (laughs) named Black in here and O'Shaughnessy and Shant. Like what? (laughs) So I think you quite courageously lead into a bunch of questions in this book that are pretty touchy, like the fact that you seem to believe there is gender. I mean, these are things that were that were not touchy questions two years ago, but all of a sudden in the last 10 minutes have become so. And you talk about how... That's okay, that people need to figure out who they are in the world. And the question is, how does the child embrace it? Have you figured out who you are as a man yet? Or is it is it always a work in progress? Yes and yes. Yes, I feel like I do sort of feel at home in my own body. You know, it's funny when I started researching and writing this book, the image that I kept returning to in terms of how I started feeling about how I have always felt about myself is the image that so many trans people talk about where they say, I never felt at home in my skin. And in a lot of ways, like I related to that, like as a white straight dude, I didn't feel at home in my own skin as a white straight dude, which maybe sounds weird, but I felt like to be that, to be what I am, a white straight dude meant I had to be a certain kind of white straight dude for so much of my life, wrestled with that for so much of my life. And it really wasn't until I was in my late 30s or early 40s that I feel like I just kind of finally settled into, all right, like you're a different kind of white straight dude than maybe you thought you had to be. And that's okay. And being okay with it and embracing it and liking myself took a really long time. And so I do think it's a work in progress. I don't think any of us are static. I also think gender expression can change over time. It can change from hour to hour. So I do think that there is gender in the sense that like there's clearly like attributes and characteristics that are more closely associated with one sex than the other on the sort of giant bell curve of sex and gender. But that bell curve, let's say there's two bells and there's sort of traditionally masculine behavior on one peak of the bell and traditionally feminine behavior on the other peak. I think those things are real in some way, whether it's primarily biological or primarily cultural, I don't know, but I think those things are real. But what is also real is that there are people on both 
sides of the slope. There's people who overlap. There's people who move back and forth between those things. And all of that's fine. Like the, the cliche is gender is a spectrum. And I think that's true. I also think it's like a prism and the light changes depending on where you're shining at, at any given moment. It's interesting because earlier you were talking about masculinity and the idea that you sort of grew up not feeling like, or everyone sort of grows up feeling like they cannot question masculinity. And of course, when I hear the word questioning, I think of, of Judaism. And I think that there's sort of something similar. I mean, maybe I'm drawing too much of a parallel here, but like this idea of young people today are sort of finding their own form of Judaism and it looks different than it did half a century ago or even 10 years ago. Do you see Judaism at all in the same way? I mean, forgive me for asking like a Jewish question on this very Jewish show, but like that language is reminding me of it. And is the next book going to be called A Better Jew? Because that'd be amazing. (laughs) It's a great title. Um, I do see a lot of overlap, not so much in terms of like masculinity in general, but my own examination of it mirrors in a lot of ways one of the foundational aspects of Judaism, which is self-questioning, questioning in general, doubt. Like I've always thought of myself as Jewish, just Jewish dude, but like so many, kind of irreligious. I grew up in a pretty irreligious household that identified as Jewish. And it wasn't until recently that I really even started looking into like what Judaism was or is from a historical point of view, from a religious point of view. And what I found was really reassuring. What I found was like, oh yeah, that's you. Like you're a Jew, just like through and through. Like you just bleed blue and white in some ways. Like, you know, you're wandering through that desert, just like all these other people and trying to figure out like, what is your homeland? And that is the story of our people. And that is also so many of our personal stories, just like looking around going, I'm not sure where I fit, but you don't stop looking. And at a certain point, hopefully, you're able to put down some roots and feel like you're at home. And, you know, some of this book is about me saying to my son, I think I've found where I'm home and it's here with you. And so I have one more question apropos the topic of of your son and your daughter. I agree that there is probably no better way to address these very important questions than by writing a deeply moving, funny, thoughtful, insightful 300-something page book. He's not going to hang out with you either, Leo. No, Leo I'll hang out with. Absolutely. (laughs) Right. We're in the same house right now, all of us, except for Mark. Leo's actually going to take you to the... You hang out with him, though. You have to go to the firing range, the shooting range. Oh, that's fine. I like shooting things. My question is this. Save for writing a book like that, how might those of us who grapple with these questions with our own families, with our own children handle it. Writing this book, in other words, do you have any kind of insight or, or any kind of, I'm not looking for Oprah magazine, sort of like the top five ways to raise a good boy. Yes, you are, Liel. I am. But give me give me parenting advice, Michael Ian Black. That's what I want. To raise a better better son. I think my top suggestion would be to buy my book and give it to people. <laughs> that, I think, makes the most sense from both of our points of view. Here's what I think it is, more than anything. And again, like I, I give a lot of simplistic and stupid advice, but I'm going to give you some simplistic and stupid advice. I think it is about if you have questions about yourself and sort of how you feel and how you relate to the world, to spend some time like looking at those and seeing where you land on the questions that are troubling you. And then the next step is literally to try to model the behavior you want to see in others. Try to be the person that you want to be and that you want others to see. And that is so stupid and simple, I know, but it's really hard 
to do because it starts from a place of recognition of your own vulnerabilities and faults and not trying to correct them necessarily, but trying to own them, live in them and be in the sort of the discomfort of being in a place that isn't necessarily familiar to you. And I think in that discomfort, like over time, you begin to get more comfortable just being you. And I think when other people see you living comfortably in your own skin, they will hopefully respond positively to that. And you know, I'm not saying they want to emulate you, but all we can do is live as an example to ourselves. And hopefully that's a good example to others as well. Michael Ian Black, when COVID lifts, will you come live in our collab house and we'll co-create with you? Oh yeah. Is it like is it like one of those TikTok houses? Absolutely. But with kosher food <laughs> and uh Be wealthy kosher? No. Liel does. I'm a I vegetarian do. and Stephanie eats whatever the fuck. And I'm regular. I'm regular. <laughs> She's a well-adjusted normal person. Well, I, ha I had a salami sandwich for lunch, so. Oh, so good. Well, now, wait a second. There's kosher salami if it's beef salami. This was Genoa salami. I think it's. The good kinds. Uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> you stand with 90% of American Jews in e eating right. the tasty stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. The book is A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son, the author Michael Ian Black. Thanks for being our Jew of the Week. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. My dogs, thank you also. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. the mailbox the j crew is still sending in their hilarious jewish autocorrect amy garris writes my nephew is named sheer hebrew for song and my phone autocorrects it to shit (laughs) that may be unimprovable and yet we will go on carolyn altman writes i typed old news into my phone and it changed it to old jews which still sort of worked and then rachel milstein writes in on my phone lulav and etrog turned into lilac and estrogen (laughs) new from the creators of emily in paris it's lilac and estrogen thanks iphone this one came into the listener line my daughter once sent me a picture of a frog around pesach time that was on her refrigerator because my granddaughter had brought it home and I responded to her by saying, I love Jewish nursery school. And because I am a middle-aged woman with bad fingers, of course, I didn't type nursery correctly. And it came out as, I love Jewish misery school. Jewish nursery school as Jewish misery school. That's a little <laughs> too close to home. Uh, guys, those are all nice. But but I think we have a clear winner here. Some setup is necessary for this one, but it's well worth it. This is from... A listener uh, who left us a message on the voicemail line and asked for reasons that will soon become obvious to remain anonymous. This gentleman was going through a a painful period uh, with his then wife, which eventually led to divorce. One way that he uh, dealt with with all this pain and stress was going to pray to Davin and Shul three times a day. Uh, And as he was going to Mariv, the evening prayers, he wrote uh, the following to his then wife. I'm going to Mariv. The phone, however, autocorrected it to, I'm going to masturbate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, Oh, boy. All right. So uh, keep the Jewish autocorrects coming. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com or 914-570-4869. Liel, the next letter from our longtime devoted listener, Arden Donahue, uh, referenced you. So I think uh, you should do us the honors of reading it. Dear Unorthodox. I, like Liel, used my Lulavtovers, Lulav leftovers, for alcohol this year. Me and my supportive Gentile mom peeled off some zest and infused the esrog into vodka. I later mixed that with lime seltzer for what tasted like alcoholic Sprite. God, I love this so much. I attached a photo of the sukkah that my mom helped me put together during the weekend. I left Mitzrayim, or as the Goyim call it, New York City, and went to visit her in the wilderness and a photo of the Esrog vodka. The sukkah was the first either of us built. Belated Sukkot Sameach, Arden Donahue. This is great. Uh, even though we may both be poisoned now by what we now realize are too many pesticides and these I think in this completely case it was unregulated Esrogs, it. it was totally worth it. Alcohol kills everything. I love the idea well, no. of supportive mothers. I, I, just, I love this. Every bit about this, minus the pesticides, <laughs> I'm, I'm all for. 
<laughs> I came in for it, as you recall, on the Mayan Bialik uh, episode last week, where she she sort of said none of us was pronouncing Mazel Tov right, but she she honed in on me, um, and we got a letter from a devoted listener and and neighbor of mine, Harriet Friedman, who writes. At least I think it's that Harriet Friedman. There are probably other Harriet Friedmans in the J Crew, but I'm assuming it's my friend Harriet Friedman, who writes. Your guest, Mayan Bialik, is correct that your Mazel Tovs sound odd. The first problem is your O. You are all too posh. A week or so in Northeast Philly would fix that. <laughs> but unless you're going to go there to get out the proper vote, you would be better off just saying COVID, COVID, COVID several times an hour. That's the correct O for Tov. Okay, so she wants a Mazel Tov. Or maybe she wants a Mazal Tov. The second problem is your V. It sounds like an F. This is not a class issue. Instead, the F to V speech production is likely physiological. Why didn't Bialik pick up on that? Anyway, two weeks in Philly would not cure it. But if you practice saying COVID, 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 you'll get that too. Of course, then we'll still have to deal with the mazel versus mazal issue. Sincerely, Harriet Friedman. Isn't it so funny that when Ma- Mayim first pointed out, I was like, is it because we don't say mazal tov? Like, but it's, it, it is true. We say mazel tov. Right. I think it's because of the Mazel Tov cocktail that, like, remember um, that someone who said that on, uh, like, the cable news? Oh, yeah. What was that someone, supposed to be? Oh, the Mazel Tov cocktail. cocktail. And someone called it a Mazel Tov cocktail. <laughs> so, which and is I think that just, like, broke my brain. A whole nother thing, as they say. The Mazel Tov cocktail is actually what Liel makes with his etrog. It is. Look. Because it blows up when you eat it. Very good. Americans of Ashkenazi descent used to say Mazel Tov because that's the more Ashkenazi, Yiddish, Eastern European way to say it. And then the Mazal Tov came in, which is more Hebrew and Sephardi. So I don't, this doesn't strike me as a great mystery. Here's my proof, right? It's, it's, it's Yom Tov becoming Yontif, right? So Yontif, like a holiday ends with an F, not a V. Yontif is, is the Tov, is the Bet going to an F sound. So I, I don't know. This doesn't strike me as mysterious, uh, no. but I have reached out to former unorthodox guest, sociolinguist Sarah Boonin Benor, and asked her, what's going on here? Like, just back me up here. What is going on? Meanwhile, of course, if anyone else wants to put me on their speech therapy couch and have at me, uh, go for it. I will also blame Fiddler on the Roof here, because think about it. A blessing on your head, mazel tov, mazel tov. That's how they sing it. (laughs) To see your daughter wed, mazel tov, mazel tov. Strong historical work. And mazel tov to all of us for having this (laughs) important conversation. To see your daughter wed. Dear Mark, I'm a faithful listener of Unorthodox and love your podcast. Hey, Liel and Stephanie. (laughs) I like it. I like it when it comes straight to me. I may not be your typical listener as I'm a Catholic woman in South Dakota. This week's episode, you mentioned Catholics having sacred time and profane time. Do you perhaps mean ordinary time? We are currently in ordinary time, followed by Advent at the end of November, then Christmas and so on. While I'm not one to typically email a podcast, the idea of your listeners thinking Catholics consider a certain time of year to be profane is concerning. Wishing you all well, Katie LeClaire. Katie, first of all, an unimprovably gentilic name, Katie LeClaire. Like, we, so good to have a Catholic from South Dakota named Katie LeClaire ready. And yes, I knew it wasn't right. I knew it wasn't sacred and profane. Uh, It's ordinary time. And then there's all the other times. So we're in ordinary time right now. Thank you for the correction. And finally, while we're on the topic of me, we got this baffling email in the inbox. Dear Unorthodox, a few years ago, I heard Mark say that Israeli politician Naftali Bennett is a racist. I turned off the broadcast and never returned. Yours, Charlie Harveth. Well, Charlie. uh, I have to listen for five more years (laughs) before I could actually write you that. That's fine. It seems like, you know, you couldn't quit us. I mean, (laughs) yours. We get the email last week that years ago you stopped listening. I think you miss us, Remember Charlie. Remember that thing you said in 2016? <laughs> yeah, I'm never listening again. 
think you miss us, Charlie. I think you've been stalking us on the Facebook. I think you've been parking outside of my regular Starbucks. Anyway, I miss you too. Come on back. Holding up, holding up a boombox above his head. <laughs> Playing Peter Gabriel. <laughs> playing Peter Gabriel songs. And finally, two unimprovable voicemails about the question last week from a listener who had seen somebody throw a baby's foreskin into his grandpa's grave when he was being buried. Uh, here's the first. Hello, Unorthodox. This is Michael Madwood calling from Seattle, Washington. I'm a moil, a longtime moil here in Seattle and a family doctor. And I can tell you that as far as I know, there is no specific tradition to throw the foreskin in with grandma's body at the funeral. However, it is customary to save the foreskin and to bury the foreskin, just like we bury all body parts in anticipation of the resurrection. And so perhaps this particular family was adding meaning to this custom by throwing the foreskin in with grandma. That's the only thing that I can come up with. All right, so that's the Moyle's point of view. And now for the answer to your question, we go to suburban Maryland. Hi, this is Yitz from Silver Spring, Maryland. You wanted to know about what to do with the little of an S-rogue, and you also wanted to know about throwing the foreskin into a grave. The answer to both actually comes from the same tradition, not disregarding a mitzvah, but combining it with another. I've always burned my lulav with the Passover chametz, and the S-rogue is used as havdalah besamin until it gets brown and wrinkly. It can also be dried out and used as a sukkah decoration for the next year. The foreskin is put in the grave because it is part of a mitzvah of Brit Milah and should not just simply be thrown out. By putting it in the grave, it symbolizes the culmination of the covenant with God that started with the Brit. Albeit, yes, they should have done it more discreetly. For years, my parents had a jar of soil in their basement that had the skins of four of my nephews. We were blessed that we did not need to attend any funerals until my grandfather passed away, at which point it was poured into the grave again discreetly. Thanks. Bye. Yitz, you have solved it. A special place in the world to come for you. Send your questions or comments to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. June, we read an article by our next guest, Kylie Unell, about her feelings about being referred to as a Jew of color. We were very interested in hearing more, so we called her up to discuss this and some of the other projects she's working on and much, much more. Here's our interview with Kylie Unell. here with Kylie Unell. She's a PhD student in Jewish thought at New York University. She's also the founder of Rooted and Models of Faith and the author of a recent essay in the Times of Israel titled, My Mom is White and My Dad is Black. Don't Call Me a Jew of Color. Kylie, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. I'm just so impressed by that intro alone. It's you. You did it. I just right. said it. <laughs> Thanks for that. I'm just impressed by me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so are we. So are we. All right. Interview over. We've peaked. This I'm done. peak interview. Done. <laughs> done. So will you tell us about the community you've created with Rooted and a little bit about it? Yeah. So Rooted is an experiment in process. 
I have this hypothesis that I think has been proven, but we'll say it's a hypothesis, that millennial Jews, young Jews between like 21 and 35 have a lot of apathy towards their Judaism. And I think that's going to bring some bad things in the future. And so I'm just trying to create a community where people come together and they just love being Jewish because they're shown that it's like something that you can do and do as a modern person and feel like you are a part of it because you are born Jewish. And if you are somebody who's alive today and knows that you're Jewish, there are a lot of people who came before you who really, really, really wanted you to know that you're Jewish. And so it's a feat. Like we are these phenomenon and we should care about Judaism because of that. So I'm trying like different events and different emails and different things to just like help people love their Judaism. When we get out of COVID, what does it look like? It looks like a lot of cool young people coming together who have ideas and care about things, but like maybe don't necessarily know that Judaism is a way to channel their ideas and channel their passions. And just talking about like tradition and talking about the past. I'm a PhD student, so automatically for me, like ideas are the grounding force of all Jewish events. I think ideas are going to change the world if they're talked about in a compelling way. And we're told like, why should I care about this 18th century rabbi who lived in Germany and was this, you know, white man who didn't talk about things that are relevant to me. And I'm here to say like, wait, 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 no, you should care about that. Not only should you care about that. You should see yourself as continuing that. So like, let's have a Moses Mendelssohn Shabbat and talk about why he matters and how we can continue his work. What kind of food are we eating in a Moses Mendelssohn Shabbat? Uh, we are having pretzel challah that I made myself, <laughs> which, by the way, a feat of my own. Like, if I want to say that I'm continuing the Jewish story, I'm doing that in so many ways, but pretzel challah is one of those ways. You put it in the baking soda pot, and that was the start. That's amazing. I want to say, like, you have, like, schnitzel and things like that, but I just want to focus on the pretzel challah. I'm there. I'm on board. I was there, and I can say you should be on board. <laughs> you should be on board. <laughs> yeah. I love the way that you really foreground ancestry, because in 25 years of thinking a lot, indeed perseverating, indeed obsessing over the Jewish project and, and what it is, we have all these questions. Is it an ethnicity? Is it a nation? Is it a religion? Is it a tribe? And... Dean Steinsalt says, well, it's a family. And to me, that, that metaphor has always worked so well. And I've always thought, or haven't always thought, I've arrived at the place where I think, if nothing else, for all Jews, what unites the most from Orthodox Jew and, and a lot of secular Jews is it's a kind of ancestor worship, right? They want to be in this sort of continuity. Who doesn't think that continuing whatever Bubby gave us has value intrinsically? 100%. 100%. And it's the way to break down anything that separates us. And there are so many things that separate us today, and I find it so frustrating. Because this idea that like there's the Reformed Jews, there's the Orthodox Jews, there's the conservative, there's the modern Orthodox, there's Haredi, like these are all labels that we've put on to group people together in modernity, by the way, to understand like, how do we relate to the world around us? I want to get rid of all of those things and just say we relate to the world around us as Jews, because that's what we are. There's a really beautiful line in this essay by this man who taught at Harvard, and his name is Harry Wolfson. Something along the lines, I might get the order wrong, but it's some are born deaf, some are born lame, some are born blind, some are born Jewish. You just deal with it. Like, it's just the thing that you have and you work within it. And we have to move beyond all of this labeling because it's not getting us anywhere and it's not bringing us together. And like, Judaism is the uniting force. And what is Judaism? Judaism is a tradition. It's an ancestry. It's exactly what you said. It's something that's been alive for 
thousands upon thousands of years that people have been growing with and grappling with. And we have to be honest about that. And we have to understand who came before us and pave the way for us to be where we are right now. And then what are we doing to pave the way for somebody else to do the same thing 100, 200 years from now? We have watched this obsession over the unaffiliated, the, un- the millennials, the Pew study. Oh, my God, what are we going to do about continuity and Jewish babies? Like, But I'm sort of doubling down on Mark's question because it's like, actually, you're the first person I've heard say, we need to look to the past. We hear a lot of people who have amazing ideas and great organizations who say, like, we need to show you how you can be a Jew in a modern world and how that could be meaningful. So are you finding that people have no idea who Moses Mendelssohn is? Or are you, like, in bringing that real, like, academic heft, are you showing people this this sort of new path forward by looking back? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, Moses Mendelssohn is just one person. I mean, there's also an incredible woman named Bertha Pappenheim who nobody's heard of. I have not heard of her. Oh my God. Everybody should. She's a movie in the making. I like, I don't screenwrite, but I want to. So you might have heard of Anna O oh, if you've studied psychology. Right. She was Anna O. Oh. Yes, yes. She was Anna O. Oh, exactly. Breuer's like big case that inspired psychoanalysis, which was known as the talking cure. And she was this woman, her father was dying. She was at his bedside around the clock and she developed these symptoms. She started seeing snakes and eels on the wall. She was German, but she couldn't speak German at certain times of the day. She could only speak French and English. She would get inexplicably ill. She experienced paralysis, all of these things. And what she learned was by talking through it, those symptoms just like were eradicated. They just went away. And that became the sort of basis for psychoanalysis. But that was something she experienced in her early 20s, I think. Wait, so what became of her? I sense there's a payoff because that's all I knew of her was she was Anna O oh in Freud's writing. Yes. Yeah, so she was fiercely committed to Jewish tradition. She founded homes for Jewish women who were Algunot. They had not been given a get, so they weren't divorced. She founded orphanages. She traveled around the world going to brothels, rescuing Jewish women because prostitution was very big as women were leaving certain communities in Eastern Europe. She'd wait on trains for them to like be going to Argentina and she'd get them mid-trip and bring them to her home. Anyway, she changed the face of like the Jewish world in Germany and was very traditional. She wrote her own prayers. She made sure that there was Friday night dinner and that there were services and things. And she was very committed to Judaism. And we need to know the stories of women, of men, of people, Jewish individuals and what they have done and what they were capable of doing in their time and use that as a sort of propeller for what we can do because there's so many things that we can do now and these narratives of like apathy of you're young you don't really care about Judaism Judaism is just like Friday night dinner there's so much more and there's so much more that you can do and you just have to love that you're Jewish and love your past to get there. I really love how much energy you have. I feel inspired right now, like my <laughs> cold heart. I'm like, oh, I, yeah, I want this. That's amazing. I just, I feel like it's hearing someone who's really excited about being Jewish, about getting other people to be Jewish. Like this is actually the energy the Jewish community needs. 100%, 100%. So what was your own journey to getting there? You've you've been, like you are yourself trans-denominational in all sorts of ways from, from what I gather. That's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. <laughs> um, so I was born in Overland Park, Kansas. I was born to the most incredible mother that the world has ever seen. She grew up in Kansas. Very like traditional 
I would say conventional, not traditional, American Jewish suburban life in Kansas City, Missouri. There's underratedly a very large community of Jews in Kansas, 20,000 strong as of 2005, so maybe like 80,000 now. But she has always been very like spiritually motivated and looking for just the best Jewish environment in which she can raise her children. And so when I was 11, my family moved to Modi'in, Israel. My parents got divorced when I was five, so it was just my single mother and her three daughters. It's like the modern Tevia story. <laughs> she's kind of <laughs> through the daughters, and now she's trying to marry us all off. But we moved to Israel, and then education wasn't great there, and we moved to Greensboro, North Carolina, little stint in Kansas in between. The long and short of it is I was in all of these different environments, like pluralistic schools, orthodox track in the pluralistic schools, orthodox school in Israel, but like we had to hide the fact that we were watching American Idol on Friday night. Blinds closed. <laughs> nobody could see. I didn't want anybody to know our big secret. That may be the definition of modern orthodoxy. Orthodox <laughs> school, but we watch American Idol on Friday night. That was it. That was it. And so I've been in all of these different environments, and I came to be more observant on my own. So my family, again, watch American Idol Friday nights. Separated meat and dairy dishes, so we did things. But I grew up going to McDonald's, doing all of the things. I've never had a cheeseburger in my life. But very traditional. And then I came into... I thought politics was my religion when I was a freshman in college, as one does. And then I met a guy, as one also does, and was like, he'll like me <laughs> if I X. And that X was, if I cared a little bit more about Judy, like, I should explore this religious thing a little bit more. And so I moved more towards the observant side of things and still consider myself observant. I, I don't like the label modern orthodox as much because there's a tank top under here and, like, I'll go out and wear that. And there's just certain things that don't necessarily fit in the... American modern orthodox. They don't fit under that label. And I think what has grounded my relationship to Judaism my entire life is a very strong personal relationship with God, which is also something I really, really want to instill and help young people come to. Because I think there's a lot of, there's this big idea that like God is the man in the sky who you have to observe the laws the right way or else it's going to come down and I don't even know what he's going to do. But since I was a kid, like my mom had us say Shema and then have a conversation with God. And we listened to gospel music and Joel Osteen and also like Jewish things because whatever had that message was like, that was all that matters. <laughs> that was it. This was all sounding Jewish in these rich, interesting ways until you got to Joel Osteen. I know. Who is the most greatest human being alive. Like yeah, that's Hands down. Hands down. But that allowed me to go and live. I, I had an internship in Washington, D.C. and lived with a Mormon girl. And I was like, I get it. Like, I get all these things. You're like, I could talk about faith. I can do faith. Speaking of your internship. So I, let's pull this all together here. Like one thing that I think is terrific is you seem like a genuine eccentric. I mean, you are <laughs> politically to the right, I gather. Yeah. And you are observant, but you've got the tank top on and you write essays with titles like my mom is white and my dad is black. Don't call me a Jew of color, which must have gotten you so much shit on the internet. I can't even <laughs> imagine. I always imagine that people with the courage to live that kind of weirdness, that kind of eccentricity, which I do admire, must be built to kind of thrive in it. Like when you put an essay like that out there or when you say I'm traditional, but I'm not dressing the way you think a traditional person should, you invite so much grief, so much guff in today's world. Do you love it or do you just are you just resilient about it I don't feel it like I don't even I like you say that and I don't even know what you're talking about that's the truth like 
when I publish this essay, not to just shut you down. Please <laughs> you do it. Shut them down, please. I'm glad <laughs> someone else is doing it. I'm so glad to be wrong. I don't live my life with other people in mind. And I say that having lived my life very much with other people in mind for a very long time. And I, I'm sure there's still a part of me that does. But at the same time, I really think that the world will change with vulnerability and just, ah, it's so cliche to say living your truth, but like finding the things uh, that are rooted in something bigger than yourself and living those and having, I just want everybody to have an intellectual basis for whatever it is that they believe. Like if you're going to be left of center, I don't care where you fall politically, just like have some logic behind it, like back it up with something. And so I've just spent a lot of time thinking about these things. And, and I, I don't really call myself conservative anymore. I, I just, I'm so over labels because when the minute I say like, I'm a modern Orthodox, politically conservative Jew who lives on the Upper West Side, you, there are a million images that come into your mind. None of those fit who I am. So I'm, I'm trying to move beyond labels because the labels just don't work anymore as far as I see it. Like I think they're doing more damage than they are good. And when it comes to the way that I, I live my life, like I have never thought that my voice was something that I needed to like have out there. I've always wanted to have my voice out there, but when it came to a topic like my family and my race, that's like not even a thing that I think about. And so somebody asked me to do a podcast in the wake of the protests and things. And I was like, I don't know, like my voice is pretty different than the ones you're hearing everywhere. I was like, I don't know if you want me to do it. And this woman was like, no, but that's kind of like why I want you to do it. And then somebody saw that and asked me to write this article. And it was at a point of frustration over the fact that when people saw me, they thought like, oh, she's got to have something to say about this. But I was just living my life. Like I was just having, I was with my family. We had just been in Chicago because it was my sister's birthday and it was Shavuot. And we were hanging out and having a lot of fun. And I think part of the reason I don't get so much shit for what I believe in and what I do is because I just kind of try and live happily and like see the humanity in people. I love human beings and I love dance. I love music. I love writing because it's such an expression of the human. It's also why I love Jewish thought or thought in general, but Jewish thought in particular, because I just, I love the way humans think. And the problem I see now is that there are a lot of people who aren't thinking, and that's very frustrating to me. There's a lot of people just going with the flow, and, and whatever's coming to them is what they believe. If they see something on Instagram, that's it. They got to have their thing out on Instagram, and they're done. There's a, a big lack of thought in the world right now, and that's the thing that I value most. So when it comes to the way that I live my life, I just like to over-intellectualize it. <laughs> think about it a lot, and like think about it in my own head. To the, to the point that I go crazy, but I don't have in mind so much. Like I've been, I've been so frustrated and upset and just like depressed thinking about what other people think about what I do and trying to fit into the modern Orthodox community. And it wasn't getting me anywhere. And I don't think it's getting the Jewish people anywhere. So I'm just like, I'm over it. There's a line in the essay where you sort of, you write, as a biracial Jew, there is an expectation that I must have something to say in this historic moment. And I sort of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. I mean, I imagine that's a, a sense of pressure that's heavy, that's big, right? It's the feeling that you have to have your thoughts figured out. You have to have every stand that you're going to take established and ready to speak publicly about now. Like, there are protests happening. Kylie, what is everything that you believe in? Stand on one foot and tell us. <laughs> These are huge topics. Like, race isn't something you can just sum up. And it's not something, like, I don't believe anybody should have a strong, I mean, you should have an emotional 
reaction to it and you should think about the protests and Black Lives Matter, all of these different movements and think about how you react but you shouldn't have a fully formed opinion until you've taken in a lot of knowledge from people who have thought about this. Like, I think there's so much context to think about all of these things and there's so much empathy that we have to have and the way to do that is by encountering other people's stories. And so we're doing a disservice to ourselves by just reading what people are saying on Instagram and saying like, I have an opinion fully formed. And that was what was frustrating for me at the beginning was that somehow because I look the way I do, I must have a fully formed opinion on this. But the reality is I have a lot of reading to do and I've been doing a lot of reading and I have a lot of things that I have to take in and listen to in order to have an opinion about this. Like just because ugh, my mom had a passionate night <laughs> with my dad doesn't mean I like came out and like had a fully formed opinion on everything related to race. Well, I think we're in this interesting moment as a Jewish community where like a black Jewish person should not be asked in a synagogue why they're there or it's assumed that they're there in error. At the same time, there is this this push for more Black Jewish voices. And I do worry about what it is that you say, which is that, like, suddenly assuming that someone should have... I mean, this idea of someone doing the work for you, of course, like, but just even having you on to ask you these questions makes me feel a little uncomfortable because you've already written that you don't necessarily know the answers. And so I sort of am trying to tease out where we go as a community, where we can have these conversations, where we can add this representation while also not putting this burden on people to sort of be our our guides into this this new world where suddenly we all understand everything completely. Our racial Sherpas. <laughs> right. American liberal Jews want to both tokenize Blacks and also criticize people who tokenize Blacks, right. it seems to me. <laughs> My approach to this is like radical equality. I should not be the only voice and people who look like me should not be the only voice guiding us through this moment. I obviously have a personal experience as somebody who goes through the world looking the way that I do. But so do both of you. Like You both are worthy of having your own podcast interview where we talk to you about what it's like to be you going through the world. And that's what I believe our community is doing wrong, saying that we need to prop up people who look a certain way because they have more to say or their voice is more important. Well, that's focusing on something that's happening right now. And I guarantee in six months, something else is going to happen and my voice is going to be less relevant. And that's the problem when we focus on like, we need these voices right now in response to a crisis that's happening in this moment, because two months from now, something's different. It's like something different is going to happen. And the problem is, is that we are going to be looking for, God forbid, but I think it's what's going to happen. We're going to be looking for the next shooting of a black person where that voice becomes relevant again because my voice is only relevant when there's a crisis. It's not that I'm just a human being who's living in the world going through it and I have something interesting to say because of my humanity, but because it's in response to something negative that happened. It seems to me that all of this can be kind of summed up by an emphasis you have on the long vision, right? That like the way to do Judaism is you look back not just to yesterday, but a thousand years and 2000 years and that we look ahead and that we don't, that we don't get tyrannized by like the moment. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. You got to write this time, Mark. <laughs> so if we want to learn more or our listeners want to learn more about Rooted or your other work, do you have some millennial type computer channels you can send them to? Yeah. TikTok. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do TikTok. <laughs> Instagram is actually the main way of doing that right now because Rooted is a very contained project. So at Kylie.unel is the best way to keep up with that. And as things become more public, there will be announcements made there. 
At Models of Faith is also a project where we are trying to tell human stories about people who care about faith in the 21st century. And so that's another avenue for keeping up with Kylie Kardashian. Just kidding. <laughs> You're going to do for the Jews what the Kardashians have done for, like, Armenian causes. No pressure. <laughs> Just, I mean, I'm, I'm like, lobbying to get Kanye over for Friday night dinner still, so, yes. <sighs> Can we come? Yeah, yeah. Can we have a seat at that Friday at that Shabbat dinner? Yeah, I think you've earned it. Yes, yes. I'll make a challah. Will there be pretzel challah? There will be pretzel challah. Yes, it will be Moses Mendelssohn meets Kanye Shabbat dinner. Kylie Yunel, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you for making me your Jew of the Week. (laughs) Mazel tov. Ma- now I can't say it. Mazel tovs. <laughs> mazel tovs. Mazel tov. Let me try. Mazel tov. Anyone have mazel tov, they want to wish the mazel tov. And you have mazel tov. mazel tov Okay, you go first. <laughs> uh, mine is requisite. Uh, it's, you know, by the time you hear this, the World Series would have uh, begun in full fanfare. Of course, it is our duty on this podcast to note uh, who are the Jews playing on both teams. So to Kevin Kermeyer of the Rays and Jock Peterson of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Mazal Tov to you both. You're, you're both our champions. And let's go Mets. Uh, I actually didn't even know there was baseball going on. I was going to say. The other day, wait, is there a world? It's October. What are, you, what are you doing with your life? I did just watch Moneyball and I have What is evening movie. like for you guys? Because mine is pretty much seven hours of baseball every night. So. I'm reading Spy Thrillers. I started watching Tehran. Can we talk about that in an upcoming episode? Absolutely. Sure. But first, Stephanie, do you have a Mazal Tov? I have a Mazal Tov to Grandpa Al. Uh, it's his birthday today, and I love him so much. Mazal Tov. Mazal Tov. Is it weird to say that, that we love him also very much? He's Probably amazing. not as much as you, but we a lot is what we're He's saying. He's the official grandpa of Unorthodox. Can we be on the same page of that? 100%. as the Orthodox say, 100%. Uh, I would like to wish a Rafua Shlema a get well soon, a healing of body and spirit to Unorthodox guest and Jew and human, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. He was on the show not too long ago, and he recently announced that he's receiving treatments for cancer. Uh, We wish him well. We hope that he is with us for many, many more years and many more appearances on our podcast and many more books. Uh, Jonathan Sachs, get well soon. And finally, I would like to give my mazel tov to Sarah Fuss Kessler, whose piece Improv Saved Me, No Joke, ran in Tablet this week. It's about how improv comedy classes helped her deal with the anxiety and baggage of some difficult family stuff in her stress-laden Ashkenazi Jewish family. And it's a it's a lovely piece. Um, and she and I worked on it together for a while. I was the editor on the piece, and I'm just so proud to see it come to fruition. So go to tabletmag.com and look for Sarah Fuss Kessler's piece, Improv Saved Me. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter, bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Wardiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Robbie Sherwin from the Wood River Jewish community in Ketchum, Idaho. We come to you again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios in the Diaspora. Shalom, friends.
festival of Booth Sukkot. The festival of Booth Sukkot. The festival of Booth Sukkot. The festival of Booth Festival of Booth Sukkot The Festival of Booth Sukkot The Festival of Booth Sukkot The Festival of Booth It's a banger. <laughs> it's a Lulav banger. I, I don't even want to think about the video for that song. I, I just... No, it's the human used cars, like those things out of the car things. Yes. Oh, you're right. Up. Yeah, and you're it's just right. a lulav. <laughs> okay, now we're all doing it on the Zoom. It's actually amazing that no one's ever made a, a plastic lulav with the air hose like that because it's kind of, right? Like how has Chabad not done that? <laughs> <laughs>